Welcome to the Journey Church. If I've not met you yet, my name is Tim. I'm the lead pastor here, and it's an honor to be here in service with you today. Uh, well, we have several things going on uh, in addition to what you heard in the video announcement. So I just want to make sure that you're uh, keyed into what we have going on. First of all, this week uh, is our small group winter season launch. Are you excited for small groups to get going again? I hope that you are, all three of you. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, as you came in, you probably saw one of these sheets on your seat. If you didn't get one, we can get you one after the service. Uh, but this is listing all the different small group opportunities that are going to be happening in this upcoming semester. Uh, and so I want to encourage everybody that's a part of the Journey Church to sign up for one or more of these. Some of you have already signed up, so thank you. Uh, you can either fill this out and drop it in the offering bucket in the back of the room, uh, or you can scan the QR code here on the bottom of the page, and it'll take you to the website where you can sign up, indicate your interest in one or more small groups. But, but church, hear me. This is the best way to get connected here at the Journey Church, Amen. is through a small group. And so Sundays, I'll say it, Sundays are just not enough. And so uh, we all need deep and profound connections. And so there's lots of good groups. There's a group for single moms. There's a group for young adult women. There's a group for young adult men. There's a group for women. There's groups for men. There's groups for students. There's groups for everybody. And if you do not see a group that fits your schedule or is of interest to you, you can still lead a group. So you just need to let us know that. You can find that on our website, just a form to fill out to let us know that you're interested in leading a group. Uh, and so get plugged in, get plugged in, get plugged in. The second thing that I want to mention to you, actually before I do that, why don't you turn to your neighbor and say, join a small group. Turn to your second choice and tell them they also need to join a small group. There it is. Look, small group connections happening right now. And then the second thing I want to mention is on your way in, I hope that you received a bingo card. Did anybody not receive one? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. We've got extras. We've got two over here. Anybody else not receive one? We've got some back over here. Got some in the back over here. Yes, yes, yes. Keep your hand up. Keep your hand up. Jess Marie's making her way through. She's got you. Keep your hand up. I want to make sure that everybody has one of these. Yeah. Here in the front row, we got a few more. Anybody else not get a bingo card? And does everybody have a pen or something to mark the bingo card with? Hopefully there's something in the seat back pocket in front of you or you have one with you. If not, we can get you one of those as well. Anybody still not have one? Excellent. Well, we are in this series called Something Different, and one of the biggest things that makes our church something different is we love to have fun. Don't you love to have fun at church? In other words, we believe that church is not something to be endured, it's something to be enjoyed. And so we want to have a good time at church, and, and the teacher in me would love for everybody to walk away here having taken notes and learned something. And so this is a way for you to take notes today. And so as we move through the rest of our service, actually some of you may have already marked some of the spaces, hint, hint. Some of you may have marked some of the spaces already. And so uh, as we move through the rest of the service, uh, this is what I want you to be focused on in addition to the words coming out of my mouth. And when you have a bingo, whenever it is, no matter if I'm mid-sentence or not, I want to hear you yell out, bingo. And we'll start the service once Noel makes his way back to his seat. 
There's time after the service to talk to people. So does everybody have one? Everybody good? Any questions? No, there are no prizes other than bragging rights. But man, if you're the first one to get bingo, we're going to give it up for you, all right? All right. I, I'm, I'm sad that I can't play along. So, All right. Well, we are in week three of this series, like I said, called Something Different. And today we're going to kind of pick up where we left off last week. Now, if you missed last week, if you've missed any of the messages, can I just encourage you to go back and watch the messages. You can find those on our YouTube channel, through our website. Please, 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 this is such a vital sermon series to who we are as a church. Our DNA, our culture, what we believe, our mission is woven deeply throughout this series. So please, 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 please go back and watch those if you've missed any of them. And speaking of small groups, every single week of this series and really the last couple of series, we've been creating small group discussion questions based on the series. And so you can go, if you're home around the dinner table, or you're just by yourself doing devotions, or you're in a small group, you can go and download those and, and go through each of those questions. There, there's usually about five or six or so, and it's very easy to work through. And so go through and find those and use them uh, because we're creating them for that purpose. And I really want you to wrestle with this series a bit. You know, we've, I've been very upfront. This is a very teachy series, number one. Uh, and so not a lot of hooping and hollering, not a lot of, uh, you know, leaving out of here feeling super encouraged. Uh, but I think all of us have felt challenged at different points, me included. Uh, it's a very teachy series, but I want us to wrestle with it because th- what we're really doing here is we're walking back through the history of the church and we're saying, man, what made the arrival of Jesus something different? And then how can we follow along with that? And so those small group questions are going to take what we talk about on a Sunday a little bit deeper. And so uh, can I just say too, I love seeing the youth all sitting together today. Isn't that awesome? Look at all these. Yeah, you can give it up for the teenagers. They'll be embarrassed by it, but it's okay. I love it. I love it. I love it. So we've considered together over the last few weeks, and we've seen some compelling videos, as Pastor Noel mentioned, of some testimonies about how you all, uh, think that the Journey Church is different. And so today we do have another one. So let's take a look at this week's testimonial video. I came to Journey because, well, my parents started coming here first. And once they first started coming, I came with them like in the beginning. And it was just like that the once or twice that I came. And didn't really think about it too much after that. And then not too long after they joined, I had experienced some sexual abuse from somebody that I was really close to. And it just really took a toll on me and my mental health. Just a lot of just regret and just sadness and confusion. And yeah, just all of those things mixed in. And my parents could see that Um, that it was getting to a point that it was dangerous um, for me because I started to be suicidal and um, they were alarmed, thank God. And they went straight to Tim and Consuela Parsons. Um, And I don't know that they told them any of the details or anything like that, but my parents let me know that like, Tim and Consuela would like to talk with you. We're gonna take you up there so you can meet with them. Like, okay, this is weird, whatever. So I, I come up here and I was just talking to them and they was asking me what was going on and I told them it was very different. Like these people aren't even my pastors and they're here listening to me. So that 
meant a lot to me. And it was just a very emotional moment. Um, and, they, and they encouraged me and encouraged me to uh, reach out to them, you know, if I had, you know, anything on my heart or, or my mind that I wanted to get off. From there, it was, it, things kind of happened kind of quickly because there was a mission trip to Atlanta that, you know, people were going on and um, somebody had like dropped out or couldn't go anymore or something like that. And so Consuela reached out to me and was asking me if I wanted to go. And I went, I was, I was reluctant because, you know, just going on a trip, I don't know these people, you know, whatever, but um, I decided to go on the trip um, and it was the best thing that I could have done at the time, for sure. Um, it was very healing for me. That trip was just amazing. And we did these things. It's like a group building thing that we, you know, we sat in a circle and then everybody read off things that they said that they thought about, you know, the person of the day. And so th those things really stuck with me. Like, you know, these people never met any of these people before and you know, they're here telling me what they see in me. And I'm like, okay, that's different. You know, again, that's different. So um, I took a lot from that trip, but mostly the main thing that I kept hearing in that trip was God loves you just how you are, no matter where you are in your walk, in your journey, he loves you and he wants to embrace you. Doesn't matter if you're still in the world and sin doesn't matter what you're dealing with doesn't matter he wants you like he loves you just how you are where you are and that stuck with me and then from the missions trip it was like after that i just felt like i was just like a member of journey like i'm in the church now so i'm here just coming from a place of you know where churches you know they look down on you for the things that you've been through and um they judge you and just I don't know. I've never felt, especially, you know, my first time coming, I've never felt, you know, just hugs and smiles and just genuine, just very genuine. Everyone was very genuine. And that's mostly the reason that I stayed was because of the people at Journey, but also uh, my pastors and just just how in touch they are. And not only do they do they remind you that they're here and, you know, that you can reach out to them, but they show you how just available they are and how diligent and genuine and loving and just caring. Now, like my son is here, he loves it. And he was struggling at first, but the people and the kids, man, were like super patient with him. And just kept reminding me that, you know, things are gonna get better as far as like his behaviors and stuff like that. So, that meant a lot to me because instead of just writing him off as like, he's just a bad kid or like, he just doesn't listen. He's just this, he's just that. They embraced him with love, never stopped caring about him, never once moaned and groaned about Caden having to go upstairs. You know what I'm saying? That means a lot. Not only have they accepted me, my parents and my sisters, but they've also accepted my son. So yeah and i just so appreciate the journey church for just the the role that they play, played in my lives i see a major difference in myself and like the things that i've been trying to grow out of I'm, i feel like i'm really making progress and i think that it's really because of the church so 
because of the family that we have here. I don't feel like anybody's being fake towards me. I don't feel like I had to watch what I say around certain people because they're going to go run their mouths to other people. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like there's really a level of trust within this community and respect. And that that's, that's the biggest difference that I've seen. Thank you for sharing that, Taylor. That's powerful, isn't it? Powerful, powerful. And uh, each week, I may have said this, but I'm going to say it again, that her story is like many of your stories. May not have exactly the same words or the, the same history, but I think many of us have a story of where not only have we recognized there's something different about the Journey Church, but that different thing is life-changing. And uh, so thank you for all of you who have volunteered to share your story very publicly with all of us. Well, taking a hard left turn, I want to mention that last week we talked about circumcision. Does anybody remember that? Mercy. <laughs> I regularly receive feedback after a sermon, but when you talk about circumcision in the way that I did, it was different type of feedback for sure. And uh, I actually shared with you this wordplay that Paul did in his letter to the Galatian church. And some of you didn't really get it exactly. Paul wrote this letter and in it he said, who cut in on you? Who cut in on you, circumcision. It's okay, it's okay, it's wordplay. I mean, if you didn't get it right away or you still haven't gotten it, you're in good company because Noel is still trying to get it. <laughs> and the truth is, I'm not sure Noel will ever get it. Is that a real bingo? You gotta say it louder! Bingo! bingo! <laughs> Let's give it up for Aiden. Yeah. Stand up. Just because, yeah. Yeah, give it up. Come on. Dang, that was fast. So fast. All right. See, you got to say it louder or else I'm, not, I'm just going to keep rolling. So you got to interrupt me a little bit. Now, here's something that we can all agree with that we all know. Religion, religion, religion is a powerful, powerful thing. Religion is a powerful thing. And, we, and because religion is so powerful, religion can actually become dangerous, can it? I mean, oftentimes, as you probably know, religion ends up in the hands of a small group of people, generally men, as I've stated. And one of the reasons why it's so powerful and dangerous is because religion is often fueled by superstition and fear. But perhaps the thing that makes religion so powerful is that it's rooted, it's anchored in our feelings, our experiences, our preferences, and our biases. And so often, those things drive our behavior, our feelings, our experiences, our preferences, our biases. They can be connected to truth, but they can also be connected to error. And as I said last week, our feelings, experiences, preferences, and biases determine, determine religious realities, whether or not they reflect reality or not. And that's what we're wrestling with, isn't it? All of us 
all of us who experience this, there are things that, for example, we used to feel religiously guilty about. But maybe we've grown and matured or changed or understood things differently, perhaps. And now those things don't really make us feel guilty anymore. Or there are things that you currently feel guilty about because of where you are in terms of your religious journey that in the past, perhaps, you didn't feel guilty about those things. And in our country in particular, we've seen extraordinary changes in our national conscience as our nation has moved either in one direction or another. And ultimately, for those of us that are Christians, or those of us that grew up in the United States in the West as Christians, our feelings and experiences and preferences and biases, whether we're aware of it or not, have been shaped by a version of Christianity, even if people don't consider themselves a Christian or a religious person. To some degree, to some degree, our conscience, our consciences have been shaped by a version of Christianity, a type of Christianity that is a combination of both what Jesus actually taught and this religious model that we've been working through these last three weeks. And all of us, and our feelings, experiences, preferences, and biases, they've all been fine-tuned, they've all been fine-tuned where we feel the way we do toward God. We feel the way we do toward sin. We feel the way we do toward one another because of essentially these things. And so whoever controls your feelings, your experiences, your preferences, and your biases ultimately control your behavior. So what we're trying to do in this series is we're trying to kind of tease out and to separate the movement that Jesus began and what we've been referring to as the religious model. Now, the religious model, the religious model is essentially a template for all religion. It goes back all the way, further than the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, certainly the Jews. As I said, and even into mud hut religions or mud hut regions of the world, this model, this religious model can be found. And so this religious model follows these four components. In the religious model, there are always holy places. There are always holy texts. There are always holy men that control the holy text and interpret the holy text. And then there are always heartfelt followers that are following the teachings of these holy men. There's always this group of people that are dependent upon the words and the teachings of a certain group of men in order to understand where they stand with God. And these men, these men, these holy men, literally stand at the gates of heaven and hell to determine who goes where. And you see our consciences, our feelings, our emotions, our preferences, our biases, they've all been fine-tuned to that kind of teaching. And it's why some of you, some of you actually abandon religion. Some of you, some of you know people that have walked away from religion altogether because of this model. Because these holy men have stood at the gates of heaven and hell to determine who goes where. And maybe you've abandoned that, you've walked away from that because you can see through it. And consequently, you want nothing to do with it. And there's great news. <laughs> when Christ showed up, when Jesus showed up, 
he launched something that was absolutely different than all of that. It was not, as I've said, Religion 201 or Judaism 2.0. It was not some knockoff of the Jewish religion. It was something that was entirely different. It had never been seen or happened before. Jesus showed up on the scene and he essentially says, I have come to do something entirely different. And whereas, as we learned last week, the religious model is always geographically specific, now Jesus would say that all nations and all people can come to me. I've come to launch something that is for all nations and all people. He came and he showed us a different covenant, a different arrangement between God and man. He brought a different command. Jesus says that every religion has lots and lots of laws, and I want to give you just one command. And this one command is to be the filter through which you view all other commands. This one command. And he came and he gave us a different ethic through which we make all of our decisions. When you aren't sure what to do, you pause and ask, what does love demand of you? When you're not sure what to do, you pause and ask, what does love demand of you? And then he brought this different movement. Jesus established, as we've learned the last few weeks, a different ecclesia, a different gathering, a different congregation. He came to establish this different movement of people that was for all the people all nations, everywhere. A movement where love would replace law. A movement where self-sacrifice replaces animal sacrifice. Where the vertical would now be measured by the horizontal. And Jesus would say to his followers, if you are at the temple and you have something that's wrong between you and God, but you also recognize that you have something wrong between you and another person, God can wait. Go and reconcile with that person. Go and make things right between you and your brother or you and your sister. God can wait. And this was unheard of. It was entirely different. Unheard of. And the Apostle Paul, he came after Jesus and the Apostle Paul was a product of the temple. The Apostle Paul, as I shared last week, was a Pharisee, the Pharisee of Pharisees. The Apostle Paul, he steps onto the pages of history as someone who was committed to stomping out the church, literally. He was type A personality. He took things to the extreme. He didn't wait around for everybody else to join him. He got to work. And there's this moment in his life where he's on the road to Damascus. I'm sure you know the story well. He was on his way to kill more Christians, and he met the one, the one who instigated the different church, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the Apostle Paul, he became a convert to Christianity, a spokesperson for Christianity, and he, more than anyone else, understood this idea that you dare not mix the old with the new. You dare not mix the old with the new, because a little bit of religious thinking, a little bit of religious model thinking mixed with this different thing, this different ecclesia, this different Jesus movement would have the potential to ruin the whole thing. A little bit of the wrong thing could impact the entire thing. In church, that's where a good amen goes. And you can mark the spot on your bingo card. Bingo. What were you waiting on then? 
<laughs> Stand up if you just said bingo. I heard like two or three. Nope, Lauren, I saw you. Okay, Allison. All right, Dory. All right, okay, okay, okay. Give it up for him. Got another bingo. Now, once you get a bingo, you can't tune out of the rest of the message, by the way. <laughs> so Paul, Paul, he says a little bit of the wrong thing can impact the entire thing. And in his letter to the church in Galatia, this Roman area, he wrote a verse that we camped out on a bit last week, and it was unthinkable. It was unthinkable that he would even say these things. The implications were just unimaginable. And he said the only thing, the only thing, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts. This was a different thing. This was entirely different. His followers were probably like, you mean it's one out of ten things? No, it's, it's the one thing. It's the only thing. The one thing that counts. But he didn't stop there. The Apostle Paul, he said something that if you grew up in church, you've probably heard a dozen times. It was in his letter to the Corinthian church. Now, in the Corinthian church, they were both Jew and Gentile. And the Jewish believers in Corinth would, from time to time, make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to go up on the Temple Mount in order to worship there on the mountain of God. And the pagan Gentiles who were becoming Christians, they would simply go down the street to their temples to worship their gods as they tried to figure out how to transition from paganism to Christianity. And to that group, both the Jewish, Jewish people who would pilgrims to Jerusalem and the, and the Gentile believers who would go to their temples with their pagan gods, he would say to them in 1 Corinthians, he would say, do you not know that your bodies are the temple? Do you not know that your bodies are the temple? And they would say, wait, 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 no. A temple is a place I go. Paul said, no, no that's the old way of thinking. That's the old version. That's the religious model. Jesus has done something entirely different. You are as holy as any piece of dirt you've ever placed your foot on. You will never go anywhere more holy than you are or the person to your left or your right is. You are a portable temple. How can I be a portable temple? He said, do you not know that your bodies are the temple. To which the Jews would say, wait a minute. No, no, the Spirit of God indwells the Holy of Holies. The Spirit of God dwells in there. And Paul would say, that's the old way. That's the old way. A different covenant has come. The Holy of Holies is of no significance anymore. It played its role. It's that cocoon that has now birthed a different movement. It got us to where we are. But the Holy of Holies is no longer relevant because you are the holy of holies where his spirit dwells. You're a portable temple. Did I hear it? There it is. Stand up, Adrian. Yeah, give it up, give it up, give it up. All right, okay. I like it, I like it. This is the perfect uh, message and activity for those who are like... Uh, uh, Distracted easily. <laughs> it's like, rabbit, rabbit. You are the Holy of Holies. You are the portable temple where the Holy Spirit dwells. And the Christian to your left, and the Christian to your right, and the slave to your left, and the slave owner on your right, the man in front of you, and the woman behind you, the child that's running in your direction, they too 
are the holy of holy. Where did I hear it? All right, stand up, stand up. Give it up, give it up, yeah. This is awesome. But that was mind-blowing. You can probably imagine it, can't you? Mind-boggling. Completely different. Nothing about the old moving into the new. And what's so fascinating is that the church, the church actually got off to a good start. The church got off to a really good start. And you know, it's fun to read this ancient literature that, that really uh, writes about what the pagans said about the Christians. Those who were outside of the movement, what they wrote about the church. And there's so much literature to find. But they watched the Christians and they just couldn't understand them. Because the Christians would literally go out into the streets and they would take in children that had been abandoned. Because in Roman culture, if a child wasn't healthy, if a child was a girl, these children were abandoned all the time. And these Christians would go out into the streets and they would bring the children in. And the Christians would not only take care of their own poor, they would take care of poor Gentiles and pagans as well. And the pagan and Roman and Greek culture, they just couldn't contain the thought. They couldn't imagine that these people would actually one another one another. That they would love one another. That they would care for one another. They would serve one another. That they would even forgive one another. But the thing that really got the world's attention, the thing that really got the world's attention was that they were not afraid of death. Because they served a resurrected Savior. And again, the Christian community began to get traction. They had no Bible. The Gentile Christians didn't even have the Old Testament. All they had were stories about Jesus. And yet, they got traction. And then about 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus, these letters from the Apostle Paul, they began to circulate around the churches. But they only had copies. They only had this one or that one. There was really no literature. There was no canon as we have it today. There was just extraordinary faith that was fueled by love for one another, even if they forgot everything else. You are a portable temple gathered with other portable temples. And the person next to you is ahead of you. And the church gained traction. And then something extraordinary happened. In AD 70, the Jewish temple was destroyed. The Jewish temple was destroyed. And ancient Judaism came to an end. It was as if God had physically, in the world, punctuated the fact that the religious model is no more. Its purposes have been served. At the point that they pointed, or at, at, that they pointed to the Messiah, they pointed to Jesus. Jesus said himself of himself, "I've not come to abolish the law. I've came to fulfill the law, the entire law. And in fact, it can be summed up in two rules: love God and demonstrate your love for God by love for other people." And it was extraordinary. And people who had nothing in common found that in Christ they had everything in common. And then something else extraordinary happened. On October 28th in 312, Emperor Constantine, he was on his way to do battle with his co-emperor. There it is. Yeah. Give it up. Come on. You guys are slacking. Slacking. 
the Emperor Constantine in three, uh, 312. He was on his way to do battle with his co-emperor, Maxentius. These Greek words are going to get me. To find out who would be the supreme ruler of the Roman Empire. And as history tells us, and as many of you may have learned in school at some point, on, the, on his way, in the middle of the day, Constantine had a vision of a cross in the sky beyond the sun. Some say he heard a voice. Some say he saw an inscription. There it is. Was that you, Simeon? Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. There it is. All right, give it up. But he saw this cross in the sky, and he heard this voice, and it said, In this sign, conquer. In this sign, conquer. And in that moment, the emperor Constantine stopped in his tracks, and he painted crosses on the shields of some of his soldiers. And they went to battle, and guess what? They were victorious. And the Christians of the day hailed him as conqueror. And suddenly, and suddenly his own personal faith expanded. And suddenly he began to consider the one true God of the Christians. And suddenly the Christians began to gain status in the kingdom. And there's all this artwork that you can find. I wanted to just share one with you here today. This picture of Constantine and you can see the cross in the sky there. And in his victory celebration, suddenly the cross, suddenly the cross became a symbol, not of crucifixion in general. The cross became a symbol of the Christian crucifixion, the crucifixion of Jesus and what was birthed, even though we wouldn't hear the phrase until the 12th or 13th century, was what we now know as the Holy Roman Empire. I saw you starting to say it. (laughs) Stand up. Give it up for Charlie. Even though we wouldn't really hear it till the 12th or 13th century, it was called the Holy Roman Empire. And the problem was, of course, it was far more Roman and far more empire than it was holy. A year after this, Constantine legalized Christianity. And when he legalized Christianity, he poured so much money into the church, he elevated the status of bishops and priests. He began to build churches anywhere that he heard that a martyr had died. Suddenly, Constantine, he was a collector of relics. Everything that he did was to elevate Christianity. He built churches, and churches didn't have to pay taxes. So guess what? All of the rich people began to dedicate their properties and their manners, and their houses to God so they didn't have to pay taxes. And a result of that is that the rich got richer, and the rich people became Christians because it literally paid to follow Jesus under Constantine. The other thing that he did was he banned crucifixion. He gave rights to children. He actually donated money to families that would take in orphans and children. And seemingly, and almost overnight, Christianity went from being a persecuted minority to an empowered majority. You tracking with me, church? It's a lot of history. It's going to get us to where we're going today, so hang in there with me. But the problem was, and this was no one's intent, 
This was no grand plan, but the problem was is that suddenly Christianity became inseparable from empire. Christianity became inseparable from empire. And the church leaders created their own version of the religious model with a little bit of Christianity sprinkled in. Now, under this new leadership and these new edicts, there would be new holy places. There would be a whole new group of holy people, holy men that began to intentionally collect all the Christian texts, bind them together, chain them to the altar. And now they would determine what was taught, what wasn't taught, and how the text should be interpreted. And this is no better understood than through perhaps something you've learned as well. It's known as the Arian controversy. The Arian controversy. Now, this was a theological controversy. And the only reason why I'm going to tell you about it is because it leads us to where we're going to go here in just a minute. But the Arian controversy was over the word begotten. Who said that? Jerry, stand up, Jerry. There it is. Oh, Sherry got it too. Sherry and Jerry, perfect. Couldn't have been better. Oh, stand up, stand up, Miles. Yeah, give it up, give it up, give it up. All right, okay, all right. We need to have an online version so they can play at home. I never thought about that. Uh, back in the room. Stand up, stand up. I can't see. Somebody raise their hand. You're embarrassed. Give it up anyway. All right, okay, all right. <laughs> it was over the word begotten. Now, I'm sure that's a question that many of you wrestle with just about every day. Did Jesus come? This was the question. Did Jesus become God after he was born, or was he born God? This was the Arian controversy. Isn't this something you think about every day? <laughs> but it was a really big deal in the fourth century. It was a really big deal. Was, was God God when he was, or was Jesus God when he was born, or did he become God? And there's this church leader from Alexandria, Alexandria named Arius. And he actually believed that Jesus' divinity was conferred on him as an adult as some sort of reward for his faithfulness to God. Most of the church leaders, especially a guy named Anna, Athanasius, who led the charge against Arius, believed that, no, Jesus was born divine. So Constantine didn't want there to be a division in the church, in this new Christianity, this new holy empire, and so he called a council meeting, as all good religious people do. Let's have a meeting. But in fact, Constantine, he hosted the meeting himself. He paid for it himself. And you know what that means. That means that everybody that comes, they're going to be kind and polite to the emperor. Now, Constantine, of course, was no theologian. He was a king. In fact, he did everything that a king would do, everything that an emperor would do, so much so that even though he claimed to be a Christian, he waited to be baptized until he was on his deathbed just to make sure that all of his sins were covered up to the very last minute. I don't recommend that. Because again, he was more emperor than he was holy Roman emperor. And so there was this debate. And as a result, you perhaps heard about the Nicene Creed. Came as a result of this. Athanasius, who argued persuasively that Jesus was born divine, won the debate. But after the debate, people didn't go away friends. They didn't say, well, you believe what you believe and I believe what I believe. No, no, no. Church, don't miss this. Suddenly, this became a political issue. 
This became a financial issue. This was a big issue. And so Emperor Constantine, again, no theologian, he put out an edict. And I want to read this to you because it explains so much of even how we experience religion today. He said these words. He said, and hereby make a public order that if someone should be discovered to have hidden a writing composed by Arius, the one who believed that Jesus was made God as an adult, and not, and not to have immediately brought it forward and destroyed it by fire, his penalty shall be death. His penalty shall be death. And now, there it is. I was waiting. Is that you, Antoinette? There it is. Give it up for Antoinette. And listen, theological division, as of this point in history, was now punishable by death. Theological division was now punishable by death. If you believed the wrong thing, that was now a crime. And suddenly, in Christianity, what you believed trumped how you behaved. What you believe trumped how you behave. And Christianity almost immediately became creedal. I'm sure you're familiar with the Apostle Creed. Maybe you memorized a different creed as a child. The Apostle Creed is an extraordinary piece of theology. It states so many things that are so important to our theology, to Christendom. The problem with the Apostles' Creed, along with a lot of other creeds, is there's absolutely no mention of the word love. No mention of the word love. In fact, there's no mention of behavior at all. You can subscribe to the creed, and basically, you can do anything you want. And there was a reason why the creeds were that way. It's because the creeds were generally signed off on by the emperor. And emperors had bad behaviors. And so the church leaders who were being funded by the emperors had to be careful what they put in these Christian creeds. Are you all tracking with me? Maybe you know all of this. But I hope for a few of you, maybe this is eye-opening. And consequently, during this period in history, in fact, during all of history, no one was ever arrested, persecuted, executed, because they loved too much. It was all about what they didn't believe. And now you have Christians arresting Christians for believing the wrong thing. And suddenly you have the church version, the Christian version of that religious model. And as I said earlier, these holy men, these new holy men became the gatekeepers of heaven and hell. And this brand new version of these holy men now, they, they, they withheld communion. They withheld baptism. They threatened to excommunicate people. Suddenly the pope and the priests, the bishops, the archbishops, had all of the power. The kings and the lords and the landowners, they all feared the popes and the priests and the bishops. And in the 11th century, as you may know, the first successful crusade was launched. 
And Pope Urban II launched this crusade, get this, with this promise that everybody who fought in the crusade, their sins would be forgiven. He promised the remission of sins. And so all these landowners and these knights who had lots and lots of sins to be forgiven charged off to fight in the first crusade. And not only did they have historical sin that needed to be forgiven, but all the way into war, they raped and they pillaged their way through Europe, all the way to Constantinople, all the way to the Holy Land, because after all, their sins were going to be forgiven. And then something else naturally happened. It occurred to these people of the day. If we have permission to kill those who inhabit the sacred holy land in the city of Jerusalem, why not murder those who are actually responsible for death to our Lord? And Jewish men and women and families and children were murdered throughout Europe. The spear of anti-Semitism went to a level it had never been before in all the world. Their wealth was stolen. They were taken. And they believed they were doing it to the will of God because after all, the Pope said it. The Pope said God wills it, God wills it, God wills it. And God must have willed it, right? Because when they go to Jerusalem, they were successful and they retook the city. But a hundred years later, God didn't will it. <laughs> and Saladin took it back. And the crusaders never controlled the city of Jerusalem in the same way as they did after that first crusade. And suddenly, this religious model was back. It was just the Christian version. Holy places with holy texts, holy men, and heartfelt followers. These holy men would interpret the text the way they thought it should be interpreted. And the movement that was fueled by love for one another came to an end. Except for one. Except for this monastic movement. A small remnant of people who understood what the Jesus movement was all about. Now the next big date, we're going to fast forward to 1517. Trust me, I'm going somewhere with you today. 1517, it's the year of the Reformation, Martin Luther and others. Bingo! Bingo! Well, heart stop. Miles got it twice. I love it. Anybody else? 1517, the Reformation. Martin Luther, a name I'm sure is familiar to you and others, they weren't trying to abandon the church. They just wanted to reform the church. That's why it's called the Reformation. But those inside the church thought they were protesting. It's where we get the word Protestant from. And so Martin Luther, he condemned the selling of indulgences. Martin Luther, he was a Greek scholar. He understood that none of, the, of what the church stands for can be found anywhere in the Gospels. Certainly their version of salvation can't be found in the Gospels. Certainly the idea that a pope or an archbishop or a bishop can control who goes into purgatory, how long they stay there, none of that can be found in the Gospels. And so they began to reform the church. And consequently, as you're probably well aware, Martin Luther was excommunicated. 
Martin Luther was excommunicated, but he didn't care (laughs) because he didn't believe the church had that power. He didn't believe the Pope had the power to excommunicate anyone. And so within the context of this Reformation, there were several solas. Now we're getting into Latin. Solas that came to light. The most popular one was sola fide. Sola fide, which simply means, as you may know, faith alone. By faith alone. This became the hallmark of Protestantism. That we believe that salvation is not by works, but by faith alone. And so Martin Luther and others began to teach that idea. The printing press had been created, and suddenly the scriptures were being translated into English, for which I mentioned him in week one, William Tyndale. He lost his life for making this text available to people in his nation, his part of the world, simply for printing the Bible. You got Trish has a bingo. Give it up for Trish. Just, yeah. Trish. People in, the, in his nation, he was, he was printing it, just for printing the Bible. And the same with Martin Luther as he began to translate the Bible into German. He was hunted down like a criminal for making this text that we all take for granted available. And the other sola that the Reformation gave us is sola scriptura. Stand up. I, I'm just hearing voices. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. Okay. Baby got it. All right. Good. Yay. All right. Good, good, good. Now, were you guys cheating off each other or just... I know some of you are going to have the whole thing marked off, aren't you? But the reformers believed, like many of us believe, that Scripture, not the church, Scripture, not the church, was the ultimate authority for mankind. And this is why they were so adamant on making copies of Scripture and getting them into the hands of people. And of course, that was a threat to the church, an enormous threat. Because suddenly, if everyone had the Scripture and no one took these church traditions seriously, these holy men would lose their power. And Martin Luther said it this way. He said, a simple layman armed with Scripture is greater than the mightiest pope without it. And without meaning to, and without understanding where this would go, suddenly in the hands of the reformers, suddenly in the hands of the Protestant church leaders, the Scriptures became the very thing that papal authority was before. Scriptures actually became weaponized. The reformers, armed with scriptures, they did exactly what the church had done before, and consequently, the reformations splintered into three, six, a dozen, and now there are over a thousand Protestant denominations all over the world. And do you know what divided them? Because some of them love better than others? No. Because some of them love differently than others? No. Because of their interpretation of the text. Because you now had more holy places than ever before. More holy men than ever before. With that holy text telling everybody how to live their lives and, and specifically grant them entrance into heaven. And what would keep them out of hell? And Protestants, they began beating people over the head with the Bible ever since. And the tragedy of all of this, even even though if we had lived in those times, no doubt we would have been caught up in the same ways of thinking, the same conflict, the same division. At the end of the day, the real tragedy was 
that love lost. Love lost. Love lost. And we simply ended up with two or three or half dozen different versions of the religious model with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled in. Now, this next part of the sermon I'm totally making up. I don't know if this actually happened, but if you'll let me use my imagination for just a moment, at some point, at some point in all of this chaos, at some point in this historical thread that we've just walked through together, we went really fast through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of history. I would imagine that at some point, Jesus and the Apostle Paul are standing at the railing of heaven, looking down, saying, how in the world did this happen? Dang, Miles, that's three. Somebody gave him too many cards. How did this happen? And Jesus turns to Paul, and Jesus says, I don't know how I could have made it any clearer. I got them all together right at the end, and I washed their stinking feet. (laughs) And I told them, this is an example. This is what you're to do for one another. And then I looked them right in the eye, and I said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know you're my disciples. If you do what? Love one another. If you love one another, how in the world did it come to this? And the Apostle Paul turns to Jesus. No offense, Jesus, but uh, I actually wrote mine down. I didn't just say it. I actually pinned it. Sent out copies, had copies made. And you know what I told him? I said, you know, Jesus, that was good what you said, but what could be clearer than that? I wrote, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. I wrote it down for everybody. There was no question. Did he really say it? Did he not say it? It's actually written down. My name was signed to it. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And then Peter walks up. says, Jesus, I'm really embarrassed. I mean, you got a garden tomb. Have you seen what they built over the place where I'm buried? They built a temple over my burial site. And Jesus, I'll tell you, I wrote mine down too. I said these words, have sincere love for each other. Love one another deeply. I heard a muffled bingo. Was that James? James and Lori, did I hear you? you? Yeah, okay, so that's two for you then. Uh, You get to leave first. So you can get to lunch before everybody else. But don't leave yet. Have sincere love for each other. Love one another deeply. And deeply, that's, it's the word ectinos. Say ectinos. And it means to love each other with intensity. And it usually talks about the way that we pray to God. Full of emotion, full of expectation. Imagine if we loved each other that way. And he says, from the heart. Love one another. Love one another. How does all of this Happen? How could something so very clear become so very complicated? That sounded like my daughter. Is that who it was? No. Was that Zaniah? You guys do sound alike, so give it up for Zaniah. 
I don't think we gave it up for the other one, too. Right. How could something so clear be so complicated? How could this different movement of Jesus with a different command and a different ethic of love that would serve as a filter for all decisions, how could something so pure, so grassroots, so one another oriented become so religious? And the reason, the reason it happened is because there's a little religious model in all of us. There's a little religious model in all of us. And our consciences have been shaped by it. What you fear, what you see as sin, what you think God condemns, has been taught to you in a way and taught to me in such a way that our feelings and our experiences and our preferences and our biases have been shaped by it. And consequently, we continue to hold on to things that hold us back and hold the church back. Here's a personal story for mine from this last week of how this religious model is alive and well. There's this private Facebook group that I'm a part of that is all pastors. And uh, they're pastors from all across the U.S. and some are international. But last week, one pastor in that group, he asked this sincere and heartfelt question. Now see if you can pick up on the religious thinking in this question. He said, there's a married couple in my church that was married before they were saved, do they need to get remarried now that they're saved? It's religious model thinking. It's religious model thinking. And you may say, well, Pastor Tim, that, you know, that's, that pastor obviously has religious model thinking. Maybe, maybe you do too. I, I, I'm not really sure about that. Well, I just want to give you a few examples that maybe will help you gauge your level of religious model thinking. Have you? Have you ever wondered how close to sin you can get without actually sinning? It's how religious model people think. Because you treat God like he's stupid. It's like, God, I want to know exactly where sin is. Because, you see, I'm not, I'm not trying to get close to you. I'm trying to get close to sin. But I don't want to tick you off. So people ask people like me, do you think such and such is a sin? I really hardly ever answer that question because it's a bad question. Do you think such and such is a sin? Basically, they're asking the question, I like to do such and such, but I don't want to sin. And I want to know exactly where that line is. So how close to sin can I get without making God mad? Have you ever had that thought? That's religious model thinking. Okay, how about this one? And you ask this one, do you ever feel guilty? Or has there ever been a time in your life maybe where you feel more guilty about missing church than you felt about mistreating someone at work. You felt more guilty about missing church than treating somebody bad. Somehow in our thinking, those things take precedent over how we treat other people. Have you ever had that thought? Your conscience is, of course, wound up into that kind of thinking, that kind of feeling, that's religious model thinking. Here's one that I've gotten over the years. It's a little sensitive, but I'll throw it out there anyway. If you've ever feared for the eternal destiny of your child based on whether or not your child was baptized, that's religious model. Somebody convinced you that putting water on the head of your child would determine where your child would spend eternity. And I understand that as a parent. 
You fear because you, you know no one loves your kid like you do. But somebody has taught you something. And if you were to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, especially what Jesus says about children, you know what he says about children, right? He says, bring them to me. Good. Now become one. Bring them to me. Now become one. It's religious model thinking. Here's one. Here's one. Here's one. You failed morally, whatever it is, whatever it was. Maybe you had an affair. Maybe you had multiple affairs. Maybe, you, maybe it, was, it was before you were married or, 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 or after you were married. Or You define morality however you chose to. Today's not the day to give you a Bible lesson on morality. But that time in your life when you would say, based on that filter you have of morality, based on your own sense of ethics and morality, that time when you failed morally with someone. Here's the question. Were you more concerned about how God thought about you than how you responded to the person you sinned against? Were you more concerned about how God thought about you than how you responded to the person you sinned against? It's religious model thinking if you're more concerned about how God thought about you than how you reconciled with the other person. Because in the religious model, the worshiper is always more concerned about themselves than other people. All right, here's another one. Do you believe, do you believe there's a ritual, there's some sort of ritual that makes you right with God and removes your responsibility to make restitution to the person or the persons you've hurt or sinned against? Do you believe that there's some kind of magic prayer? There's some kind of penance? There's some sort of, well, if I do that consistently and if I serve, maybe become a scout leader or something, then whatever it is, that will make you right with God and remove any responsibility to make things right with another person. Religious thinking. How about this? Do other people elicit feelings of superiority or compassion in you? Do other people's failures elicit superiority or compassion? Sort of like, oh, those people. All those Republicans. Well, of course they did that. They're Democrats. Well, they're liberal. Well, they're conservative. Well, they're Presbyterian. Well, they're Catholic. Well, they're Baptists. Oh, they're pagans. Is there ever a time, a moment, when somehow other people's failings and other people's sins, however you define sin, makes you feel morally superior instead of breaking your heart? And it's like Jesus said, the Pharisee who stood up in the temple and said, God, I'm so glad I'm not like those other people. They're disgusting. They're disgusting to you, God, and they're disgusting to me. And I hope I don't get their impurities, God, because look at me. I'm pure. I'm moral. Is there any of that in you? I know there's that in me. And listen, if your immediate thought as I'm unpacking these things is someone else, that's religious model thinking. This is a time to reflect personally. Do your beliefs, do your beliefs or your theology ever get in the way of your love? It's a religious model. Do you have views in your life 
that get in the way of you loving another person? It's religious model thinking. And it is in all of us. Every one of us. Our consciences are bound to it. But imagine with me, friends, if we were simply free from it. Imagine a world where every single believer in Jesus Christ got up every single day and recognized, you know what? God's fine with me. Now i got to figure out how to be fine with other people so that they can be fine with my Father in heaven. Imagine what a difference that would make. Because I think what fuels the religious model thinking in many of us is simply our failure to truly embrace the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus, he died for you. And as much as that's a theological category, as much as you may have prayed a prayer when you were a child, when this gets in your heart that Jesus died for you, you will begin to recognize that Jesus is for you. And once we understand that Jesus and his Father are unequivocally for us, that there is no measure, that there is no sin that puts you outside of his love, that the grace of God has no measure and has no limits, once we settle into that and that gets into our heart, that becomes the context through which we understand all of the rest of Scripture. It becomes the context through which we interpret the Old and the New Testament. And it goes right back to what Jesus said when he said, hey, it's real simple. You love God and you demonstrate your love for God by loving others. And that's it. Worship team, you can come on back up. So when you aren't sure what to do, pause and ask, what does love demand of you? When you aren't sure what to do, simply pause and ask, what does love demand of you? Because Jesus said it, and the Apostle Paul said it, Peter said it. It's woven throughout all scripture. The entire law hangs on loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. And friends, I believe that that's what makes our church different because we embrace that. We wrestle with that. We have room to grow, but we want it and we desire it. And so what if that characterized the church? What if that characterized you and it characterized me? What if? What if God's love for us and for those around us informed our consciences and shaped our behaviors. And when that happens, as that happens, and not until it happens, they will know that we are Christians by our love. Our love. They will know that we are Christians by our love.
Friends, do not miss next week. That's another one on the bingo card. Anybody not get a bingo? Everybody, I heard, I heard, is that you? Is that, oh, okay. Raylan didn't get one? Wow. Oh, she did get one. She just wanted to stand up, okay. You didn't get one? Oh. Which one didn't I say? She didn't scan the QR code. Uh, well, listen, don't miss church next week. Ladies, don't miss next week. If you're married, have your husbands on the front row. If you have a boyfriend, have them on the second row. Listen, I know it's a lot of teaching, very heavy, very heavy, but I hope you can see throughout history how what we believe has been shaped by those things. And just a little bit of the wrong thing. Man, it can ruin the whole thing. And our mission, our goal, the reason why we're doing this series is to strip off the religious thinking in all of us so that we can once again engage, engage, engage in this thing that was completely different. A totally different way of approaching life within the context of a different covenant that says your sin is paid for. Now live a life that reflects the forgiveness of God as you mirror that in your forgiveness and love of the people around you. Church, don't miss next week. Stand to your feet and let's worship God one more time.